Chapter Twenty Two of the Great White Queen by William Lequeux. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Twenty Two To the Unknown. When, with elaborate genuflections and vows of allegiance, the governors of the six principal provinces of the mystic kingdom had taken leave of Omar, we remained in consultation with the old sage for upwards of another hour. He told us many horrible stories of the Naya's fierce and unrelenting cruelty. It seemed as though during the later years of her reign she had been seized by an insane desire to cause just as much misery and suffering as her predecessors on the Emerald Throne had promoted prosperity and happiness. In every particular her temperament was exactly opposite to the first Naya, the good queen whose memory had, through a thousand years, been revered as that of a goddess. Galiba explained how, during the past three years, the great white queen had suddenly become highly superstitious. This was not surprising, for as far as I could gather the people of Mo had no religion as we understand the term, but their minds were nevertheless filled with ideas relating to supernatural objects, by which they sought to explain the phenomena about them of which the causes were not immediately obvious. He told us that the Naya, preying upon the superstitions of the people, had recently introduced into the country, entirely against the advice of himself and his fellow councillors, a number of customs, all of which were apparently devised to cause death. He told us that if a great man died, his friends never now remained content with the explanation that he died from natural causes. Their minds flew at once to witchcraft. Someone had cast an evil spell upon him, and it was the duty of the friends of the dead man to discover who it was that had had dealings with the powers of darkness. Suspicion fell upon a certain member of the tribe, generally a relative of the deceased, and that suspicion could only be verified by putting the accused to the test of some dreadful ordeal. A favorite ordeal, he said, was to make the suspected person drink a large quantity, a gallon and a half or more, of a decoction of a bitter and slightly poisonous bark. If vomiting occurred, then a verdict of guilty was passed upon the unfortunate wretch, and no protestations or even direct proof of his innocence could save him from the tortures in store for him. The victim was condemned to death, and death was inflicted not swiftly and mercifully, but nearly always with some accompaniment of diabolical torture. One method was to hack the body of the wretched person to pieces with knives, the most odious mutilations being resorted to. Occasionally the unfortunate creature was tied to a stake while pepper was rubbed into his eyes, until the fearful irritations so produced caused blindness. Or, again, the victim was tied hand and foot upon an anthill, and left to the agonies of being consumed slowly by the minute aggressors. The most satisfactory death, perhaps, was that when the condemned man was allowed to be his own executioner. He was made much of for an hour or so before the final scene, and was well fed and primed with palm wine. Under the excitement of this mild stimulant he mounted a tree carrying in his hand a long rope formed of a kind of stringy vine of tough texture. One end of this rope he fastened to a bow, and the other he placed in a running knot over his neck. Then, quite pleased at being the center of observation of the multitude, even on such a gruesome occasion, the criminal harangued his tribesmen in a great speech, finally declared the justice of his sentence, 
and leaped into space. Should the rope break, as occasionally happened, then the zeal of the executioner overcame the fear of death of the victim, for he mounted the tree nimbly once more, readjusted the knots, and did his best in the second attempt to avoid the risk of another fiasco. "'And have such pagan customs actually been introduced during my absence in England?' asked Omar, astonished. "'They have, alas, O Prince,' answered the sage. "'The people, taught from childhood to respect every word that falleth from the lips of our great white queen, adopted these revolting customs, together with certain other dreadful rites, believing that only by obeying her injunctions can they escape the wrath of the crocodile god. As rapidly as fire spreadeth in the forest the customs were adopted in every part of the kingdom, until now the practices I have briefly enumerated are universal. But surely my mother could never have devised such horrible suffering out of sheer ill-will towards our people. Alas, she hath, answered the old man. If thou believest not my words, take each of you one of the cloaks hanging yonder, wrap the Arab hakes around your heads and follow me. Make no sign that ye are strangers, and ye shall witness strange sights amazing. We all three arose, and quickly arraying ourselves in white cotton burnooses, wrapping the hakes around our heads in the manner of the Arabs, a fashion adopted by some in the city in the clouds, and pulling them across our faces so as to partially conceal our features, we went forth with our guide on the tiptoe of expectation. "'What sight, I wonder, are we going to witness?' I whispered in English to Omar as we walked together along one of the narrow streets in the deep shadow so that we might not be detected. "'I know not,' my friend answered with a heavy sigh. If what Goliba says is true, and I fear it is, then our land is doomed. The power of the cruel Naya must be broken, and you must reign and bring back to Mo her departing prosperity and happiness, I said. I'll do my best, Scarsmere, he answered. You have been a true, fearless friend all along, and I feel that you will continue until the end. Till the end, I echoed. The end will be peace, either in life or death. While I have breath, I will fight to preserve the traditions of the Nabas and the Nayas, who, while ruling their country, gave such satisfaction to the people that never once has there been a rebellion nor scarcely a voice raised in dissent. It has always been the policy of the Sanoms to give audience to any disconcerted person, listen to their grievances, and endeavor to redress them. The reign of the Naya is, according to all we hear, one of terror and oppression. The poor are ground down to swell the wealth of the rich, and no man's life is safe from one moment to another. It shall be changed, and I, Omar, will fulfill the duty expected of me. Well spoken, old fellow, I answered enthusiastically. Remember Galiba's warning regarding the attempts that may be made to assassinate you, and always carry your revolver loaded. When the Naya hears that you have defied her, she will be as merciless as she was to poor old Babila. Ah, Babila, Omar sighed. He was one of the best and most trusted servants Mo ever had. Having been one of my dead father's personal attendants, he was faithful to our family, and altogether the last man whose head should have fallen in disgrace under Gankoma's sword. If the punishment she inflicted upon him was so severe for such a paltry offence, that which she will seek to bring upon you will be equally terrible, I observed. Therefore act always with caution, and take heed never to be entrapped by her paid assassins. 
"'Don't fear, Scarsmere,' he laughed. "'I'm safe enough, and I do not anticipate that anybody will try and take my life. If they do, they'll find I can shoot straighter than they imagine. But they might shoot first, I suggested with a smile. I don't intend to give them a chance, he replied. We must not fear defeat, but anticipate success. I have made offering to the fetish, and although the struggle must be fierce and unrelenting, I am determined to strike a blow for my country's freedom. At this juncture Goliba joined us, and urging me not to speak in English lest the strange language might be overheard, we walked together for about three-quarters of an hour through thoroughfares so wide and well-built that they would have been termed magnificent if constructed in any European city. Then we crossed a large square where a great fountain shooting up a hundred feet fell into its bowl, green with water-plants and white with flowers, and afterwards traversed a maze of narrower streets, now silent and deserted, where dwelt the workmen. Suddenly Galiba halted before an arched door, and directing us to imitate him, knelt and touched the doorstep with his forehead, then passed in. We followed into a place that was strange to even Omar himself, who was scarce able to suppress an exclamation of astonishment. It was a small chamber, lit by a single flickering oil-lamp of similar shape to those so often found amid the traces of the Roman occupation of England, while around were stone benches built into the wall. Walking to the opposite side of the narrow prison-like place, we saw before us an arch with an impenetrable blackness beyond. Before this arch stood a kind of frame made of iron, resting on either side upon steel ropes raised slightly from the ground. Following Galiba's example, we got upon it, crouching in a kneeling position in the same manner as himself. "'Thou wilt find handles wherewith to steady thyself,' he cried to me. "'Have a care that thou art not thrown off.' I groped with my companions, and we found the handles of which he had spoken. Then, when all was ready, the grey-faced sage raised some lever or another, and we shot away, down, down, down into space with such fearful velocity that the wind whistled about our ears, our white robes fluttered, and our breath seemed taken away. The sensation was awful. In utter darkness we were whirled along we knew not whither, until suddenly the car whereon we travelled gave an unexpected lurch as a corner was turned, nearly precipitating all of us into the darkness beneath, and then continued its downward course with increased speed until sparks flew from beneath us like flecks of fire from a blacksmith's forge, and in our breast was a tightness that became more painful every moment. It seemed as though we were descending to some deep airless region, for I could not breathe. The atmosphere felt damp and warm, and the velocity with which we travelled was becoming greater the deeper into the heart of the earth we went. "'What is this place?' I heard Omar ask. "'I know it not.' "'Be patient, O Prince,' and thou shalt witness that which must astound thee, old Galiba shouted, his squeaky voice being just audible above the loud hissing as our car flew along the twisted strands of steel. Suddenly, above the hiss of our rapid progress, there could be heard strange noises, as if a hundred war-drums were being beaten, and at the same instant our curious conveyance gave another sudden lurch in rounding a corner. At that moment Galiba, in turning to speak with Omar, had unfortunately loosened his hold on one of the handles, and the sudden jolt at such a high speed was so violent that our faithful guide and friend was shot off backwards, and ere Omar could clutch him he had disappeared, 
with a shriek of despair into the cavernous darkness. A thrill of horror ran through us when we realized this terrible mishap. Yet nothing could arrest our swift headlong descent, and feeling convinced that Galiba, our host and adviser, had met with a terrible death, we sat staring, motionless, wondering whither we were bound, and how, now that we had lost our guide, we should be able to reach the surface again. At the moment Galiba had been flung off, we remembered that the iron frame had jolted and grated, and there seemed no room for doubt that the generous sage had been mangled into a shapeless mass. The thought was horrible. At last, however, we felt the air becoming fresher, and the strange contraction in our breast was gradually relieved as our pace became less rapid and distant lights showed before us. Then suddenly we emerged from the curious shaft down which we had travelled to such enormous depth, gliding slowly out into a place of immeasurable extent, where a most extraordinary and amazing scene met our gaze. Truly poor Galiba had spoken the truth when he had promised that what we should witness would astound us. End of chapter 22 Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com